Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal-making and finance. I'm your co-host, Derek Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and uh, we've uh, Turn the page into uh, August here. Football is starting. It's uh, It does feel different out there. Absolutely. The NFL is moving. College football is going to be moving. And uh, it's really fun leading into the fall. And we uh, just had the big uh, baseball trade deadline. Juan Soto is no longer a Washington National. He is now a San Diego Padre. And that franchise is rocking and rolling. So a lot of interesting stuff happening out in the space. Absolutely. And the pennant races are going to heat up here uh, very shortly. So a lot to unpack here. We've talked a lot about Live Golf and what they've been up to in in prior weeks of the podcast. More major developments here in recent days. Speaking of the NFL, we had uh, a big uh, decision come down from the league and commissioner Roger Goodell regarding the Miami Dolphins. And some interesting baseball developments, not in the United States, but actually uh, the Indian subcontinent and the Middle East that we're going to uh, get into. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Mike Levine from CAA Sports, one of the most prominent agencies out there. Mike's a real veteran of the space, and they've done a bunch of really impactful things in the business. So we're going to spend some time with Mike and uh, talk uh, about what they're up to. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Mike Levine, co-head of CAA Sports, a division of leading entertainment and sports agency, creative artists agency. Under the leadership of Levine, widely known as Vino, CAA Sports has consistently been one of the most prominent and influential entities across the entire global sports industry. And the firm has negotiated some of the most prominent deals anywhere, including the naming rights agreements for the Chase Center, Levi Stadium, and Intuit Dome in California, among many others. CAA Sports representation business, meanwhile, supports a wide array of players such as Major League Baseball sensation Shohei Otani, National Basketball Association star Zion Williamson, and three-time National Hockey League Stanley Cup champion Sidney Crosby. The firm recently closed a major acquisition of ICM Partners, advancing a wave of consolidation in the sports and entertainment agency space. And CAA is also an investor in sports entities such as the Premier Lacrosse League. And elsewhere in lacrosse, the firm's executive search division helped identify Brett Fruit as the new commissioner of the National Lacrosse League. Vino has been with CAA since 2007, previously leading the Van Wagner Sports Group, and he is now a regular fixture on annual lists of the most powerful executives in sports. Vino, welcome to the program. Thank you. So good to see you guys. Two old friends and uh, (laughs) nice to to be talking in a new forum. Appreciate that very generous introduction, my friend. Yes. So let's sort of start with your own sort of uh, career journey here. Uh, As I indicated, you've been around a a long while. You've done a lot of stuff here. As you sort of look back, uh, this isn't a retirement discussion here by any stretch, but uh, as you sort of look back as as to what you've done, how would you sort of kind of summate your career pathway to get to where you've been? And what would you sort of consider some of your key achievements today? Ooh, I'll, I'll ta- tackle the first part of that question by just saying it's wild to think that this summer is my 30th anniversary in this industry. I, I got a job working for CBS Sports back in the summer of 1992. And um, it's just 
mind boggling to think that that was 30 years ago because I still feel like that same curious, interested kid just amazed that I could actually appease my parents by going to work in this business every single day as a job. So um, I've loved it. It is wild when I look back and think about what things were like in 1992, what you guys have done covering our industry and creating a business of sports media around the industry is such a change that we tend to take for granted now with so many resources, so much information, so much networking available at your fingertips. I, I think about those those first years and finding a decision maker was half the battle. Once you actually knew who was making a decision, it was the easy part to try and do a deal because I remember using the phone book. <laughs> I mean, literally the yellow pages to canvas as a young salesperson in the um, early 90s. I was fortunate enough to be hired coming out of college by a small sports agency called Athletes and Artists, which was Art Kaminsky's representation firm that had evolved from being a hockey agency to being an agency representing a lot of on-air television personalities like Al Michaels and Dan Deardorff and Chris Berman and Bill Walton. And, and that company grew through a series of mergers and acquisitions into what was called the Marquee Group and then became SFX Sports Group which was a roll-up that took place throughout the 90s uh, and was eventually bought by Clear Channel. So I, I sort of spent my 20s as what I guess was a salesperson. I, I didn't set out to be a talent sales executive, but uh, felt like that was a place where I was able to add some value in my 20s. And I liked the notion of delivering deals to our clients that they hadn't counted on. You know, they had their day jobs and then for us to bring additional income was something that made me feel like a hero to those clients, which in my 20s was really rewarding. And then as that company grew as a part of a, a more formal, more global sales organization, which gave me a chance to get exposure to other types of sales people and selling of consulting services and the naming rights business was emerging and uh, media assets and... Um, it really was an incredible time to be a young person in the industry because I was learning as um, the, the industry was evolving throughout the 90s. And I love that. I was always fairly entrepreneurial and sort of always wanted to try and stay ahead of what was coming next. So tried to expose myself to Chris's world and digital sports opportunities as those sort of evolved in the early 2000s. And um, I think that that curiosity is something that hasn't disappeared. And I, you know, found myself in the last couple of years really being interested and amazed by things happening in a Web3 capacity and um, have tried to pay attention to, you know, the growth of the NFT marketplace and how that can impact the sports industry. And, um, you know, I'm just excited to still be 50 and find myself feeling like a little kid in the business. Well, Mike, as you look at the business today, which is obviously in part athlete representation, but, but much more, can you share with our listeners a little bit of an overview of the different segments of your business and what you focus on? Yeah, sure. CA Sports is in the business of trying to 
be in the way of commerce. You know, we are a service organization as an agency. That's what an agency is. It's providing services to those that are in need. And if I think about it in simplistic terms, I think everybody who's listening or everyone in our industry understands the talent representation side of our business. And that will always be central to what we do at CAA. CAA was founded in the mid-70s and representing stars in music, television, and, and film. And CAA Sports continued that as a, a fourth leg of that stool representing athletes. And we represent athletes in, in all team sports currently, and, um, and we always will be in that business. It, it represents a really healthy, growing, and mature part of our business, but it's highly competitive. Each sport has dozens and dozens of agencies that are competing for prominence in football or basketball or hockey or baseball or soccer, and we do our best to try and, and remain competitive there. But when we set out to build CA Sports, we always wanted to be the best in that area, but also surround that area with other services. And in those other services, we represent what I kind of think about as two different constituencies. On the farthest end from the athletes would be brands. And that is a, a consulting advisory business that we call CA Brand Consulting. We have three or 400 people globally that are working on behalf of brands as brand agents. That also is a very competitive and mature space, sort of grew a specialty out of what was the old agent ad agency models. And, and many of the leaders in the sports industry are in that part of our, our industry, whether that's the WME or Wasserman or Octagon or many other brand side agencies that we compete with. And um, that's been a, a real source of growth and an area of importance for us because understanding what's driving brands' decisions is really central to the ecosystem at large. So it's an area that will always be important to us. In the middle, between the athletes and the brands, sits what, what we call rights holders, teams, leagues, and governing bodies. And we provide a variety of services for that category. You mentioned our work on behalf of the Yankees and Madison Square Garden and the San Francisco 49ers and currently the, the Los Angeles Clippers and, and the Warriors and the Chase Center. We obviously got our um, start where Paul Danforth and I kind of grew up, which is selling sponsorships. That was my job coming out of you know my 20s. I really spent a lot of time focused on sponsorship sales, worked closely with Paul while he was uh, at the Mets as their chief revenue officer and, and made that a, a thrust of the early stage of what was CA Sports's efforts. Howie Nuchow, who's my partner in Los Angeles and now actually has lived in Nashville, always wanted to have what we hoped would be the best-in-class sponsorship sales organization. If we could deliver for institutions that needed our help, it would enable us to build referrals and have a business that we could always have as a cornerstone. Additionally, we always felt that being an advisor in the media rights landscape was going to be important to us. It was an area that Howie and Paul and I didn't have by upbringing, but always were curious about and and we understood in 2006 and 7 as CA Sports was 
being formed, that that was going to be important to the landscape. So we were lucky enough to build what we we believe is a best-in-class team around Alan Gold, who we hired away from the USTA, who had had experience working at NFL Properties. And that group with he and Fabian Steckel and Caroline Ribello has really helped change the landscape of the media business in sports over the last 15 years. On top of that, we have been able to enter into a few other services for rights holders that have given us a chance to work with team owners and leagues who may not necessarily want to hire us for sponsorship or naming rights work or don't have a media deal to do. And really, Tim Romaney's Icon Venue Group was the most important strategic add to that area because when you think about it, team owners and leagues have assets that are of vital importance to their franchise or their league. And, and selling sponsorships is one, selling media is another, but their venue is at the centerpiece, their real estate, their home. And Tim's company, which he built 20 years ago out of Denver, has been at the forefront of stadium development and sports real estate development on a global basis. Adding them to uh, CA was a really important piece to the puzzle. And CA Icon is now working on somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 projects around the world, stadiums, arenas, amphitheaters, and various venues that we're building for team owners. So that is an area that was important. We grew that by adding some technology expertise on that front. We added Dan Barrett's business, which gave us sort of an even earlier look at projects where team owners are evaluating sites and locations within the city to potentially build venues. And it was just one more way for us to transact. The, the last piece in additioning, in addition to licensing that we do for teams and leagues is the work that you referenced uh, at the top of the hour there, Eric, where Joe Becker has built a world-class executive search business for CAA. It's something that came about when Paul Danforth and Howie and I were, were looking to try and expand our footprint overseas. We got to know uh, Joe and, and his team because we were thinking about hiring them to help us find um, great executives overseas. And um, over the course of, of getting to know them, Asher Simons and, and Joe Becker, that is, we kind of all stumbled upon the notion of them coming to do this for us. It's something that CAA historically had been doing for about 50 years, helping executives that were friends of theirs find jobs. We just never were in a position where we got paid to do it. And now we have 18 full-time professional search executives in New York, LA, and London who are placing, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 to 300 C-level executives throughout the year in varying positions in film and television and sports and media and uh, and gaming. So it's, it's uh, an opportunity for us to really help trusted partners in the industry to help them find the people that they need to, to continue to grow. And today's announcement about the NLL commissioner uh, was an exciting one that we're uh, really proud of. The agency business historically has been among the most competitive and even, dare I say, cutthroat uh, components of the industry here. How are you finding that dynamic now? And what do you see amidst all of that as a particular competitive advantage? Well, 
wish I could say that it's not as competitive as it used to be, but unfortunately, that would not be true. It's like any high-profile industry. There's a lot of worthwhile and impressive people who are out there fighting for business. And the nice thing for CAA is that they've been competing for almost 50 years now in Hollywood, and they've done so with class and with some level of elegance and a real similar approach to what we've tried to take in sports. We really feel like if we do good work, good things will happen for us. And um, that's the approach that we take in every segment we compete in. And, you know, people ask who we're competing with. It's a really hard question to answer. We've identified somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 different companies in the 17 or 18 different lines of business that we're in that we compete with that we think are formidable. So in any given segment that we have, there are anywhere from five to 20 different companies that that will come across in in some competitive capacity for fighting for business. And that's hard. It's exhausting. And frankly, the success that we've had has made it so that we're we're not surprising anybody. And um, people are always keen to compete with us and and we're okay with it. We'll, you know, we'll do the best we can and and win whenever it's possible. But understand that we can't win them all. Over uh, over the past couple of months, Mike, we had the MLB draft, the NBA draft, the NFL draft, and sometimes people look at a scorecard of agencies and how many of those draft choices did they have? And how did you guys do over the last few months in those in those drafts? We've been really fortunate to have a team sports practice that has consistently been what we think is quite dominant. It is hard to avoid constantly keeping score and constantly thinking about where we could have done better. That's um, definitely something, a sickness that we all suffer from at this company. We want to be the best we can be. And we frankly set the bar for ourselves really high by having record-setting drafts, I think, in every sport that we've participated in over the years. This particular year has, has been very strong. The irony of one of the, the scorecards, we ended up, um, I think we had four first-round picks in the NFL draft off the top of my head. Through the acquisition of ICM, we added an agent named Jeff Nally who came from ICM. He had two first-round picks. The, the deal technically hadn't closed until a few days after the NFL draft. So technically, we only had four, but right now we have six NFL first-round players that we represent, and we're pretty excited about it. I think that's a, a long-winded way of us, of, of me saying that we don't get too caught up on the scorecard on any particular draft because we've been doing this a long time, and we've always been at or close to the front of the line as far as our agency competition. And what we realize is there are some years where we have by far and away the best draft class, but don't end up with all the best players. And other years where our draft class might not look so um, sterling and sparkling, but we end up you know, with players like Donovan Mitchell or Devin Booker, who sort of slip down into uh, the middle of the first round of a draft and end up being, you know, max or super max players. So, you know, philosophy wise, we're trying to recruit players 
who will have an impact on the leagues that they're being drafted into and having impact on those leagues for a long period of time. So the verdict is not going to be in for quite a while about where we shake out from the 2022 draft, but we feel pretty good about where we ended up in football, baseball, and basketball and hockey. I don't have all the statistics at my fingertips, but we did quite well and, and we're excited about where we're going in each of those sports. There's obviously a lot of new opportunities in front of athletes of, of in many sports in terms of investment opportunities, media opportunities, brand opportunities, and so forth beyond the obvious contract work. How do you see the representation business changing to sort of address that new realm of opportunity that's opening for these guys? It is more important than ever that athletes and talent work with representation that have the ability to deliver for them in a variety of ways. And we have spent a lot of time and energy and resources trying to build an organization. And frankly, we're we're coming up to about a thousand people at CAA Sports who are here to try and help provide opportunities for all of our clients. It's um, a landscape that is evolving constantly, but it's never been better to be a high profile athlete than it is right now. And I think, you know, we're about a decade into social media's maturity, and many of our highest profile athletes have broader and, and wider footprints than TV networks that they their games may be shown on. That gives them a platform and a power to communicate with their audience on a regular basis, on a direct one-to-one capacity that is of great value. And um, our guys and we understand that, and we're working constantly with them to figure out how the best ways to continue to grow that audience and to continue to nurture them so that at the right moments when important business opportunities arise, that they can be activated. And um, a number of our athletes have have really helped show us that way and, and are at the front of the class doing so. Mike, a couple of the big categories that have emerged in the sports space over the last few years, sports betting, crypto and NFTs, you mentioned but these areas also may have some risks and some challenges. How do you advise your athletes who are looking to do endorsement deals in these areas without sort of getting them in a situation where, let's say, a crypto company then goes bankrupt six months later or there's issues around the betting space? How do you think about some of those new emerging categories? Well, we sort of try and take an approach like we always have, regardless of the category, which is it's really important to figure out who you get into business with. And there have been risky categories and or companies that had great peril for athletes for a long time before crypto and before sports gambling. We haven't done a ton with active athletes as it relates to the gambling categories. Most of the deals that we've been doing in that genre have been with retired athletes and or with media personalities who are helping those sports gambling companies communicate their messages and deliver content for them. And that's something that we're excited about and we think will continue. And we think that those voices provide the authenticity that distinguishes one gambling company from another. The crypto and NFT space isn't that dissimilar to other emerging technology trends that that the three of us have seen over the course of the last few decades. 
And there's going to be winners and losers. We know that. How do we help our guys navigate that? First, we want to educate ourselves as best as we can. And back in in mid-2020, we were fortunate enough to have the wherewithal to put a a NFT working group across the agency here that's been meeting weekly since the early stages of the pandemic and sharing information, talking about what an NFT is at the very beginning and figuring out how do NFTs apply to the various segments of our entire agency outside of sports as well. And that has provided a really helpful and useful set of expertise that we can then share uh, with our different clients and different agents as the opportunities emerge. Our approach in sports as it related to the NFT sort of gold rush of about a year ago, I guess maybe 18 months ago, was for our biggest and sort of bluest chip clients was to really think long term and to acknowledge that this was an emerging area and that there was going to be a shakeout. So we've been fortunate to avoid any of our clients getting really caught in some of the major crossfire. And we've been pretty careful. I mean, rule of thumb wise, I I always feel like you're doing business with people. And it's really important for us to spend the time with the leaders of those companies that want to do business with our highest profile clients so that we can help figure out if they're the kind of people we want to be in business with. And that very basic and, and fundamental premise has, has been helpful. And, you know, it's, it's managed to keep us and, and our clients out of harm's way in a large way. I mentioned the ICM deal before. What was the rationale behind that particular acquisition? And how do you see that particularly moving the ball forward for you within the context of what you've described about the agency? Yeah. So the ICM deal was approached on a broader basis than just sports. The ICM has been in competition with CAA in Hollywood for, I don't know, 50 years from what I can recall. And there are some great synergies that exist outside of sports, particularly in the representation of uh, IP in film and television. Uh, They've got a a world-class books group and publishing division that I know was was very attractive to us as an organization. They represent some of the the biggest showrunners and and television creators, which fits well with, with our TV business. So that was there to begin with. What was a nice surprise and what we found was that their sports business was very sizable largely the international football business that was operating under the banner of ICM Stellar. Their two lead agents, Jonathan Barnett and David Manassi, were two guys that we uh, were impressed with when we spent time with them in London, and we continue to be impressed with them. For us, strategically at CA Sports, we believe a lot of our growth in the next decade is going to come outside the U.S., So having acquired base soccer and converting that organization into what we call CAA base three years ago, and having seen the success that Leon Angel and and Frank Tromboli have had since joining forces with Matthew O'Donohoe at the leadership of Paul Danforth, we were ready to double down in the sport of global football. 
and bringing ICM Stellar into the mix and adding those resources on behalf of global footballers is something that we're super excited about. And, and we think that our impact on the international sports scene is, is going to grow quite a bit in, um, in the years ahead. So that was the thinking. Mike, you, you described earlier in our conversation your business as a service business. There are other agencies, particularly Endeavor, that have gone out and acquired major properties like UFC. They just bought, as you know, OpenBet or buying OpenBet. How do you look at those kind of opportunities, acquiring or owning or operating your own properties at scale? Is that something that you're looking into or what's your view on that? I think they've done an amazing job with what they've been able to do with the UFC. We haven't taken the same approach. And um, and frankly, I would never say never, but it's um, we're pretty comfortable and happy with the business that we have. We think there's a tremendous place in the industry to be best in class as a service provider and to really focus on what it is we're doing for athletes, for teams, for leagues, rights holders, and for brands. And um, we think there's a lot of open space for us to continue to grow in that regard. Keep our eyes open for opportunities that could help us go in different directions. We spent some time you know, working with the USDA looking at the uh, Cincinnati Western and Southern Open, which is an incredible event. And it was something that we were impressed by. We, we love the sport of tennis. We've been partners with the USDA, delivering them a number of their global sponsors at the US Open and the US Open Series for many years. We have a really nice working relationship with Lou Shear, and we're impressed with the team in Cincinnati. It just wasn't a perfect fit for us at this point. And um, you know, that's the way we have to evaluate all these different opportunities, really look at them for what they are and then look at them and how they fit for us. And, and at this point, we, we think there's a lot of room for us to run in the service side of our business and, and continue to deliver for clients in the categories that I laid out. As you look ahead as to how CAA will operate, do you think there is any potential of this company being publicly traded? And if so, are what what do you see as potentially an advantage there of being publicly traded? You know, honestly, that's always a possibility, but we aren't feeling any pressure to change the way we're operating as an organization. We've been an incredibly successful privately owned company for almost 48 years now. And, um, you know, as far as I know, we're going to just continue on the path we we're on. We have um, some private equity partners that have been long-term partners with us in TPG. They first invested in us in October of 2010. So um, we've got a very stable, long-standing leadership and management team that works really well together, has worked really well with our private equity partners from from TPG and and Tomasic and CMC. And, you know, I I think that we have the ability to take the company in in any number of directions, including staying on the path that we're on now for the foreseeable future. Mike, as you look at the next 12 months for CAA Sports, are there one or two big initiatives that you're really focused on? Any kind of new new initiatives or areas that you're you're going to spend a lot of your time on? Yeah. So, you know, look, I referenced my personal curiosity and interest in Web3. We as an organization are convinced that that is going to be an important part of 
the pop culture area, which is what we are as a broader agency, a pop culture agency for years to come. We want to be leaders in that space. We want to continue to help provide expertise and guidance to our clients, not just in sports, but in film, television, music, and games. And that's pretty exciting. So I've spent a good amount of time trying to immerse myself with real thought leaders in that area. It's an area that I think we're at the infancy stages of, and I'm excited about what lies ahead. Broadly, as a sports group for these next 12 months, coming off of the strength that we had in in 2021 and where we are here in 22, we're back on offense. We're really thriving on every cylinder of of our areas of our business. And we want to feed the growth. We want to fuel further growth and opportunities. And whether it be through geographic expansion, whether it be through organic growth of things that we're building here, or whether it be through M&A, we're going to be active and, and aggressive. And it's exciting to think about. I think if I were to sort of outline a a place or an area of growth, I would say broadly that our growth outside of the US is going to continue rapidly. um, We've had great success these last 12 to 36 months growing our global football business. We've been working with Formula One now for five years and Red Bull Racing and Daniel Ricciardo on a on a driver front, that's been an incredible journey that we're excited to continue. And we've expanded our footprint with people. Uh, so, uh, sending Adrian Stati, who uh, joined us in the past year to open uh, a Singapore office with uh, Sam Chen, who came from our London office to really give us a starting footprint uh, in addition to our, our team in China in Asia. And we're, we're seeing great results from Germany, from London, from Scandinavia, and now from this Singapore office already. So, so we're excited by all that. Well, clearly a lot happening in and around CAA sports. We're going to be continuing to track that across all the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank their co-head, Mike Levine, for spending this time with us. Thank you so much, Eric and Chris. You guys uh, have been great friends for a long time, and I I appreciate you guys having me on today. Thanks a lot. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Mike Levine again from CAA Sports for spending that time with us and turning our attention now to the news of the week here. Just another set of... uh, Pretty significant developments in and around Live Golf, the uh, Saudi-backed entity that obviously has completely created a major schism within the sport of golf here. We're taping this. We're a week out from the completion of the third event on the Live Golf calendar, uh, the Bedminster, New Jersey event. Had a chance to take in uh, some of that uh, as it was just down the road from me. But since then, we've had a, a several developments in that both Live Golf and the PGA Tour have both come out with their own sets of sharply increased uh, player purses for 2023 as they sort of engage in a bit of a financial arms race here. Exactly the sort of thing that uh, Jay Monahan, the PGA Tour commissioner, says that that entity ultimately cannot win, but it's playing out nonetheless here. 
And then the latest development is that we've got Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, and nine other live golf competitors. They have filed a federal antitrust suit in U.S. District Court in California against the PGA Tour, you know, looking to get a ruling that the uh, suspensions from the PGA Tour, the punishments that that entity has uh, levied upon this group are unjust. And so we've already seen business competition. We've seen regulatory uh, inquiries into what the PGA Tour is doing in response to Live Golf. And now we're headed to a courtroom. So pretty much as we expected here, but these chapters just continue to unfold in, in combative form. Yeah, I don't think there's much of a surprise that this is now wound up in court. The question will be whether there's some you know, relatively quick decision about an injunction or, or letting these players back in or whether this is a lawsuit that extends months and months and years and years. And so no one really knows the answer to that. I do think the fact that we've now gotten to litigation probably does have some other effects, though. It may potentially discourage some of the other majors to uh, from from prohibiting players. It may give potential partners a pause in terms of the way they they behave in the context of, of this controversy. So now, once the lawsuits have actually been filed, I think it makes some of the other parties around the ecosystem, even outside of the two combatants, probably have to be more careful about their behavior. And, and, and maybe that does have some impact. Yeah. And one of the particularly interesting legal questions surrounding this, at least to me, is that you read through this lengthy complaint that was initially filed on this. And, you know, there's a lot of the expected language that you would see in there. And irreparable financial harm is one of the things that jumped out. And can these players prove irreparable financial harm when they're getting these massive signing bonuses from Live Golf? And so you, you can sort of make, you know, one sort of set of arguments about world ranking points and those sorts of things. But does this case ultimately hinge upon any claimed financial injury when the financial model around live golf is so different? Yeah, I, I don't think anybody, again, Eric, really knows the answer to that. I think we're in uncharted territory for a sports league or sports organization. And my sense is it's going to take a while to sort out both sides of this argument. I, I'm sure at some point we'll hear the official response from, from the PGA Tour, and, and some of those points you raised are likely to be part of the discussion. But again, I, I think we're really into uh, you know a unique situation, both in the courtroom and, and on the golf course right now. And, and it's, it's really making for a good story and good uh, good press, but uh, I think you know it's, it's probably not the most comfortable position for these players to be in. And in the meantime, you know, there's this whole sort of question as to, you know, how Live Golf is going to be able to stand on its own as a, as a business entity. Now, obviously, they've got this major backing from the Saudi Public Investment Fund. There's certainly a long runway on this where they understand that losses are going to be happening now as they build this thing up and everything. But in the meantime, there's not a lot of these traditional revenue sources coming in. And, you know, there's really no major sponsorship to speak of. The, the content is being distributed for free on various streaming platforms. Tickets are being given out for free. There's really nothing in terms of any robust, mature revenue source coming in around this. And so there's that. And then looking ahead, the question is whether that will even come, because having been at the Bedminster event, which was on Trump property, this thing is sort of morphed into 
you know, essentially uh, the sports wing of the extreme right wing political spectrum here that this was sort of, um, you know, really kind of morphed into a MAGA rally here. And, you know, any major sponsor or media network that's looking to appeal to those of all political stripes here, this, you know, could really become a hot potato they don't want to touch. Well, well, addressing the the revenue point first, I mean, fortunately for this league, unlike many emerging leagues, there isn't probably the kind of pressure that you would normally have to have that revenue come in, you know, day one or as soon as possible. So I, I do think they have a bit of a, an interesting opportunity there to play the long game. On the other hand, every emerging league needs to have exposure, needs to build its brand, needs to build its fan base. And and the real challenge, particularly in the U.S. from, let's say, a media and television perspective, is that NBC, CBS, ESPN, you know, have deals with the PGA Tour and don't seem inclined, at least at the moment, to do a deal with Liv. And Fox, which might be the likely suspect, uh, hasn't moved in that direction yet either. So, you know, how do you ultimately, beyond the short-term revenue, how do you build a brand among fans and consumers before you even start talking about some of the controversies that you mentioned, Eric, and some of the political issues that always tend to polarize us around sports these days? But I think finding that television and media deal is going to be critical, and I I don't see where that is right now. Yeah, I you, you look at the the likely suspects you raise you know you mentioned pretty much all of them and there you raise a lot of good points here and i'm not sure where that deal comes from and that's you know for any major sports entity here in north america or elsewhere that's that pays a lot of bills here and that's a really important thing and i just i don't know where that comes from and and the other major player i didn't mention is you know discovery which has a big relationship with the PGA Tour in Europe. And obviously, they're now the owners of the Turner properties. So that makes yep. that avenue uh, difficult. I, I think one of the reasons perhaps Liv was talking to Charles Barkley about possibly being an announcer or commentator was to really drive some more momentum around a potential TV deal. Because again, I think without that kind of exposure, no matter how much money you have behind you, it's hard to make the events relevant. And and that will be a key challenge as we think about next year. Yeah. And the Barkley thing that was really interesting as those negotiations played out, and I did have a chance to speak to Charles briefly as as he was playing in the Pro-Am there, that the way those negotiations were sort of playing out is that any sort of potential compensation, and it's important to note that they never did reach a deal here, but predicated in those discussions is not only beating the number that Turner is paying them now, but accounting for the loss of all of the sponsors that are aligned within a Capital One subway and so forth that, you know, Charles has got, a, you know, he's a very big sponsorship presence and he's a pitch man for a lot of major brands here. And because these brands, again, for the reasons we've discussed, don't really want to be associated with this property any compensation deal would have had to bake in that loss of revenue as well. And so, you know, the bar for anybody to sort of get on board here financially is just really high here. Well, well, that that doesn't happen to be one of the problems that Liv seems to have. Having right. said having said all of that, again, you talked to Charles, I've seen the comments that he's had out there. It seems like this was a little bit more of a gut decision around his affinity for Turner and the NBA and and more of a personal decision than, you know, the dollars were $5 more here or the other. But it does sound like he took it seriously. And I think that would have been a big boost from a reputation standpoint for Liv and made made a broadcast uh, potentially really entertaining and innovative 
and and Liv is already you know offering some interesting format changes, which which I think could be compelling. But you know they they really need to get over the hump of this media uh, exposure. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. If you sort of take a lot of the noise around Live Golf and the political issues, the legal issues, PGA Tour issues, and try to put all that aside, if you try to look at what they're doing as a pure play competitive thing, there's some interesting ideas there. And golf has been a very tradition bound sport and sort of looking at this in a different way and looking how you compete in a different way, how you approach fan experience in a different way. There's some interesting ideas there that could potentially take hold and have a broader application. And whether some of those interesting ideas reach their full potential, that's still a very much an open question. Yeah. So while there is there has been acrimony and challenges here over the last several weeks, there are some positives overall in the sense that there are experiments here with some new formats for the players. As you referenced earlier, Eric, the purses are growing, you know, more opportunity for players to make money. So there are some good things regardless for the sport overall. But right now, the the combat is really what's taking center stage. There was a lot of even headlines, Eric, over the last week about, you know, what they had offered Tiger Woods yes. apparently to play. John Daly saying that he wanted to play. I, just every week, there's something new and interesting, and and just occupies the headlines. So we'll we'll right. see if this continues. Well, many more headlines to come on that front uh, for sure here. But shifting from golf to football here, as we mentioned, uh, you know, preseason games and the Hall of Fame game have uh, started in the National Football League. Regular season is just around the corner. But as that happens, Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, is going to have to be staying away for a little while here following a six-month investigation uh, commissioned by the league. The NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell have issued a series of punishments to Ross and the Dolphins for tampering and competitive integrity violations. Ross himself is suspended until the middle of November. He was fined a million and a half dollars, and the team has been stripped of two draft picks. And there was a series of violations here that there was tampering involving current Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady, former Saints coach Sean Payton. And while the uh, substance, the the full meat of the uh, tanking allegations made by former Dolphins coach Brian Flores were not substantiated. Ross was found to have mentioned on multiple occasions that the team's draft position in 2020 should be prioritized over the win-loss record the year before, which would set up that draft position. So, you know, a lot of uh, things sort of happening around here and a lot of it not good for obviously Ross Dolphins in the league. But from the league standpoint, it was sort of a cake and eat it too bit of a conclusion here where, again, the the core competitive integrity allegations that could really harm the business of the NFL were not substantiated. Ross and the team nonetheless were punished here. So it does strike to me probably the best possible outcome of this unfortunate situation for the league. Yeah. The most serious charge in my view was, you know, paying to tank the games and, and that seems to be, have, have been dismissed or found at least from the league's perspective, not to be true. You know, tampering is something that isn't, uh, isn't great. And I think in some of Rogers comments, this was kind of among the most egregious that they've apparently ever seen. But having said all of that, the fine of a million and a half dollars, to someone like Steve Ross is 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 not a huge 
price to pay and you know the, you know being out of, of, of the, some of these meetings and being away until the middle of October again isn't the the biggest penalty that someone could suffer having said all of that as you know Eric these owners are in these positions not necessarily to make money they're in it to you know help the communities and and build their brands and and really create legacies and so to be one of the few owners in the history of the league to be suspended i'm sure is not something that steven is is happy at all with given even though the, the fine was was not very high but you look at the nfl writ large here they're going to keep right trucking along here see regular seasons going to arrive and you know they're looking at another banner season lots of great teams they've got a television schedule that sets up very well here uh you you look at as unfortunate as we're discussing this episode is and this situation with ross is you know the the business of the nfl this is this again it's not going to make a major dent here i totally agree eric and you know there's other things going on obviously there's been the washington uh series of issues uh, you know there's other uh, challenges facing the league but the business continues to grow. The ratings uh, continue to be strong. And so again, I think this is a, a little bit of a bump in the road. If if the the you know the paying to lose uh, element had been true, then I think we'd be seeing a much different kind of challenge. But since that wasn't the case, uh, I, I think you know there, there isn't going to be a major impact going forward. Now, having said all of that, I, I, you look at this from Roger Goodell's perspective, this would appear to be a, a pretty good thing for him in the sense that for all the success that he's helped engineer for the NFL, there's been that sort of notion out there that this is fundamentally an owner-driven league and it's people like Bob Kraft and Jerry Jones and the like who really sort of drive the situation here and that Roger just works for the owners, which technically is true, but he obviously has this broader administrative oversight and health of the game response responsibility and the fact that he could sort of come out in this public fashion, punish an owner for these clear transgressions and make the comments that he did. The commissioner role is such a tricky thing where you do work for the owners, but you have to have this independent aegis as well that, you know, I think that was a good thing for Roger to be able to try to strike that proper balance. Yeah, that I mean, Roger has a great talent in that regard, and, and it is an unusual position. And again, this is not the first time. Obviously, there were fines in association with with Washington. We saw in the case of, of the, the Carolina the Panthers going back. Yeah, yeah. Carolina Panthers, you know, Jerry Richardson ended up you know, selling the team to Flategate. So, you know, obviously there, there were some issues at, at one point between Jerry Jones and Roger around his contract. So there there are those brouhaha's that happen, but I think ultimately in this particular case, it's hard to argue when it, it appears that the tampering was so egregious. So I, I think, you know, Roger is on solid ground on this one. Yeah, although it is interesting because if you talk to team executives and agents off the record here, they'll tell you this sort of thing happens all the time here. But it appears that clearly there was some smoking guns here that just could not be ignored. Well, it sounds like there was more direct ownership involvement right. potentially than some other cases. And also, uh, allegedly, you're talking about Tom Brady and Sean right. Payton, which are not, uh, you know, are, are pretty well-known names. So, and, and This by is the not way, a third-string punt returner. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and also interesting, it, it doesn't sound like there's any punishment or any investigation around those parties. It, it really focused on on Stephen Ross and, and his number two, as opposed to the players and coaches themselves. Right. Well, much more to come on that front as well. But shifting from football to baseball here, 
as Major League Baseball goes through its own uh, pennant chase here, and we've got the Field of Dreams game coming up in a few days. I'm actually heading out to Iowa for that one and looking forward to seeing that in person. We have a whole other entity that is uh, cropping up in this sport on the other side of the world where the, a new entity called the United International Baseball League is planning a formal debut in 2023 in uh, preparation for an even bigger ramp up in 2024. And this is an entity that's going to be targeting India, Pakistan, and the Middle East, entities that have traditionally been industry strongholds for cricket. And uh, the purveyors of this uh, new entity are looking to convert some of that rabid cricket fandom into fandom of baseball. And one of the interesting things on top of uh, this new entity being formed in and of itself is you've got the involvement of two major Hall of Famers from American baseball, Mariana Rivera, the former great reliever of the New York Yankees, who was the first to be inducted into the Hall of Fame unanimously, and the former great uh, Cincinnati Red shortstop, Barry Larkin. They're both involved in this entity and more than just a sort of token or monetary involvement, they're actually going to be uh, rolling up their sleeves and getting involved in a lot of the competitive aspects of this. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see because uh, uh, Major League Baseball, which is not involved in this entity, they're really trying to ramp up their international uh, efforts uh, around the, in building the game. And we've got the World Baseball Classic uh, coming back next year after a lengthy hiatus that was uh, furthered by the pandemic. And now you've got this other entity, you know, trying to sort of build baseball into more of a world game. Yeah, I think it's good news for MLB, even though they're not officially associated with this group. There are, I guess, around 2 billion people that live in the countries or the regions that are being targeted for this league. Obviously, there's a huge cricket audience, which they're hoping to convert. So there definitely are some potential big opportunities there. I think one of the challenges is ultimately, how does this get funded? From what I've seen, Eric, I'm not sure there's a clear path on that, or at least not has been released or announced. And when you think about these emerging leagues that succeeded, you know, the UFC had the Fertitas, yep. uh, MLS had, you know, Anschutz and Kraft and others, even PLL today, as we think about a newer league, they've got churning solidly behind them. So it'll, it yep. will be important for these folks to have really deep pockets because it takes a long time and a lot of money to get these leagues up and running. Yeah. And thinking about this league, the one that sort of almost sort of jumped out to me is perhaps the closest North American counterpart is the USFL and sort of drafting off of, you know, other affinity or around the sport here. And like the USFL, the uh, UIBL, the, this new uh, baseball league, they're going to be playing in existing stadiums, looking to do sort of a concentrated, low cost, competitive format and, and so forth here. But again, to your prior point, the USFL has the major backing and operational uh, oversight of Fox Sports here. And there's nobody of that sort here that's really overseeing the UIBL in the same way. There's a number of individual uh, executives who have had their own respective and significant success in their business careers uh, overseeing this new entity, but nothing on that major corporate level like what we're describing with these other entities. And and their strategy may be launch this first tournament next year, show the, proof of, show the proof of concept, show the, the power of it, and then be able to get uh, you know even more funding as they go forward. I do think we're in a time where launching emerging leagues is more promising than it was in prior decades, I guess, because 
You've got uh, this lower cost model that a number of uh, leagues are, are, are embracing. You've got streaming opportunities. You've got social media to build fan bases. So I do think we're in an era where there's a lot of momentum for emerging leagues. So timing is good. And especially, again, given the fandom and size of that market, uh, you know, there, there, there really could be something here. Yeah, and the Rivera piece of this, uh, I'm going to be particularly interested to watch here is uh, and how he sort of uh, what kind of public presence he continues to have as he works with this new entity. You know, Mario Rivera is you know so highly regarded not only by fans but others within the game, and, there, and part of the reason why he, not only just his personal and team success, but part of the reason why he was unanimous elected unanimously to the Hall of Fame and was the first player to do so is that the argument is very clear that he's the single best relief pitcher in the history of the game. And there was positional debates everywhere else in the history of baseball, but there, there is a very clear consensus that when it comes to relief pitchers, he is the clear number one in that sport. And, and he, he carries that level of respect around with him and, and how he uses that equity that he's built up for himself. It's going to be very interesting to see. Yeah, and as you pointed out at the beginning, it sounds like both he and Larkin are going to be really operators in the yep. sense of the of the competition, as opposed to, you know, just on some board advisors page in a deck. They're really getting into it. What I do wonder is what if they have any particular tie or affinity or relationships in this part of the world that inspired them to to participate in this particular project. I don't know the answer to that, but clearly they have a passion for it and they're 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 kind of going all in, certainly reputationally, into this venture. Yeah, for Larkin, the answer on that one is pretty clear that his uh, current agent is uh, the current president of the UIBL. So he was sort of brought in through uh, uh, Cash Shaikh, uh, one of the uh, lead executives on this mm-hmm. effort. Rivera was sort of brought in on a more external factor. And again, that's part of the why the Rivera thing is particularly notable for me. Yeah. Well, look, I, again, I think we'll we'll have a much better sense of what this looks like, you know, after they do the initial tournament in Dubai. Uh, there certainly is plenty of money out there to fund sports properties, as we've seen with Live Golf and, and others. So if they can gain some traction, I think ultimately they will have a shot at, at making this something. Well, much more to come on that front here. But as we come to uh, an end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a look elsewhere in the space and see what else is catching our eye uh, looking forward. And Chris, I will start with you. Yeah, Eric, I noticed an interesting fundraise, uh, which is a company called Sportsbox AI, raised a little over $5 million for their motion capture technology, which I think is going to help initially golfers with their swings and overall with their their golf game. What what intrigued me about this one was, you know, David Blitzer, again, an investor, one of the most prolific, if not the, the most prolific investor in the sports space, but also this joint venture between Elysian Park and PGA of America, where they've yep. partnered to create a fund to support uh, emerging golf businesses. This is an investment that they've gotten behind. And so I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how this one plays out, which I think is one of their first big plays in the space. Blitzer, again, having that name on the cap table and his relationships uh, certainly helps as well. You know, and from my standpoint, I know this is a look ahead segment, but I do need to sort of make a bit of a uh, shout backwards here to two greats of the industry that we just lost here in recent days. The uh, legendary uh, sports broadcaster Vince Scully, most, uh, of course, noted for his uh, very lengthy run with the Los Angeles Dodgers and Bill Russell, the uh, basketball champion and civil rights icon here. You know, these are just two greats of the industry, and they just really don't make them like Bill Russell and Vince Scully anymore. And uh, 
you know, for all of their sort of professional achievements, you talk to anybody who's spent any time with either one of them. And I, I did have a chance to meet Vince Scully briefly a couple of times, uh, did not uh, have much time to spend with Bill Russell, but uh, you talk to anybody who has, and you, you almost can sort of put their professional accomplishments aside and who they were as people and what they were about as people, even much more impactful than anything they did in their actual working life. Absolutely. Two two legends on the court, on the field, off the court, off the field. What I noticed about Bill Russell is, you know, I would go, I have gone to the NBA All-Star weekend probably for the last 15 or 16 years. Bill was always there. He continued to be involved with the NBA. He continued to be involved with players. And you could just see how everybody looked up to him and respected him and his involvement continued. And obviously, Vin continued to broadcast uh, you know, well, well, well into his uh, later years. So both of them not only had impactful careers, long careers, and uh, are well-respected across the industry. Yeah. And the other thing that sort of jumps out to me is that Vince Scully was your favorite broadcaster's favorite broadcaster, and Bill Russell was your favorite player's favorite player. So that just tells you the kind of professional respect that each of these guys accorded here. Absolutely. And I think some of the tributes they've received over the last week have really shown how much they meant and and were very well deserved. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not represent financial or investment advice. And just as a quick programming note, uh, we're going to be taking a little bit of time off here during the duration of August for some personal holiday and such. And we'll be looked to be back with you in September. Until then, take care and uh, we'll see you then next time.